Welcome to Awaken to Sleep Education. We're going to have some fun tonight talking about telemedicine, how it relates to dental sleep medicine. And uh, we've got the amazing and infamous Dr. Jack <laughs> Deep Bijwadia. I know he'll probably shake his head uh, at some of my... Uh, <laughs> My compliments here, but uh, just just to give you guys uh, a quick bio uh, on Dr. Bijwadia, uh, he is the founder and CEO of Sleep Med RX. Um, he also serves as, serves as the chief medical officer uh, for a couple of companies, Whole You and Better. Uh, he's triple board certified in internal medicine, pulmonary medicine, and sleep medicine. And uh, prior to starting his own practice in Minnesota. Uh, he served as attending physician at Health Partners Medical Group, um, where he was the department head and the director of the um, Sleep Medicine Center. Uh, he currently holds faculty position as assistant professor in the Department of Pulmonary Critical Care and Sleep Medicine at the University of Minnesota, um, where he serves as the director of the sleep program until uh, 2012. Uh, he also, in his spare time, completed uh, the executive MBA program at the University of St. Thomas in Minneapolis. Um, he's been named top doc by the Minneapolis Magazine, as well as US News and World Report. And he is the past president of the Minnesota uh, Sleep Society. Um, he is actively promoting positive sleep health across the state of Minnesota and the United States. And I have to say, Doc, you have, uh, you have amassed quite a following of colleagues and raving fans for your telemedicine solution. So well, thank you. We are, we are truly looking forward to the content tonight. I do know you've got slides and I don't wanna stay in the way of those. Um, sure. Is there anything that you wanna add that I missed? Cause you know, I'm, I'm just the announcer here. No, that's great, Michael. And thanks for that uh, kind introduction. Um, you know, it seems like a long time ago when I started out, uh, you know, in dental sleep and I don't know whether I ever told you the story, but I actually uh, am a CPAP failure. So I, I have REM-related sleep apnea and uh, many, many years ago, um, you know, tried CPAP, you know, couldn't tolerate it. And uh, being a sleep dog, it's almost like a failure, right? You feel, mm. you know, bad that here you are preaching and, you know, um, but I was looking for alternatives um, and uh, found uh, somebody that was uh, in Minnesota at the time Dr. Morarasu, who was board certified in sleep and got a dental device and never looked back. So, I mean, I think, um, you know, I, I certainly am a believer in oral appliances. Uh, I've been, you know, associated with Somnomed for many years as chief medical officer now at Respire. So I have a, I have a deep um, sort of appreciation for the dental field. I've, I've talked and, you know, worked with so many uh, prominent KOL dentists and really, I feel uh, I, I feel the pain uh, that dentists sometimes go through. You know, both getting into the field and trying to get referrals from sleep physicians that just you know may be skeptical. And I think that it's fair to say that you know the whole point of Sleep Med RX for me was to really reduce barriers for patients. And uh, and obviously telemedicine allowed me to sort of catapult that to a new level. But I, I really, yeah. I, I honestly feel that, you know, the way to success is, is uh, collaboration and also mm -hmm. an appreciation of patient preference. So yeah, yeah, I'm excited. I'm excited to be here. Absolutely. That's awesome. Yeah. How, how long ago did you get your appliance? Out of uh, curiosity. In uh, 2004. So quite a while ago. Wow. Yeah. A little bit ago. So yeah. you're, you're one of a long-term uh, compliant patient. Yeah, helping right. those numbers out on the oral yeah. plant side. Yeah, cool. And I haven't had too many side effects, so we're good to go. That's awesome. Well, right. uh, before before we do get going here on the slides and the content, uh, this is a CE event, guys. So um, we do want to just give you a couple of uh, disclaimers, uh, disclosures. So the webinar tonight is hosted by Awaken to Sleep and Sleep Med RX. I am the CEO founder here at Awaken to Sleep. Uh, we help dentists do better work in dental sleep medicine. Uh, Dr. Jag Deep is uh, the CEO of Sleep Med RX, so he is facilitating those telemedicine consults. Um, outside of that, uh, the standard stuff. Uh, <laughs> you all have been on CE courses before. Uh, there's going to be a survey link posted in the chat at the end of the um, webinar tonight. 
Uh, we can do that at the earliest at the 55 minute mark. So we'll do it as soon as we can. If you click the link, it's gonna take you to a survey that will take you exactly 37.2 seconds to complete. It's incredibly long, just kidding. It's really short, succinct, uh, won't take a lot of your time. Please fill that out. It will auto-generate your CE certificate. If you miss the link in the chat for some reason, that's okay. Uh, we're gonna send you an email tonight. It will get to you by seven o'clock Pacific time. If you don't have an email in your inbox by seven o'clock Pacific, it's in your spam. Please check that before you go dig up a support link ticket. We would super appreciate that. Uh, the other thing is guys, we wanna uh, enjoy the time together tonight. If you've got questions, we are here for you. So please post them in the Q and A. Uh, we will try to keep the chat for any tech support issues or um, answering any of uh, Dr. Bijwadi's questions as he's going through this tonight. So uh, hang on, we got a lot of content to get through and uh, let us know if you got questions, we're here for you. Doc, it's all yours. Thanks, Michael. Um, and uh, hi everyone, uh, appreciate you uh, joining the webinar and um, you know, hopefully we'll, we'll get some interesting information across. Just as a, a little bit of background, um, what I'm gonna do is you know, start with some really broad strokes about telehealth and telemedicine and what it is and how it evolved, maybe uh, just a few short things. We'll talk about some of the barriers and regulations that one has to sort of navigate as one, do, as one does telemedicine, which is important for all of you from a regulatory standpoint as you start working with, uh, you know, maybe other companies as well that do telemedicine. Uh, we're going to dive down a little bit into, you know, what are the types of things that we can do with telemedicine, um, you know, and sleep. Um, I think sleep is a specialty that's especially suited to telemedicine, and, and we'll, we'll learn about some of the sort of studies that have been done that validate that. And then um, the last, uh, you know, several slides will be focused more on dental sleep medicine. Like, what does telemedicine um give to a dentist that wants to do sleep um, medicine in particular and sleep apnea specifically? And how does that improve the patient journey and reduce barriers? And how, what, what is the best way to use telemedicine? And I think that over the last two or three years, we've certainly learned uh, a lot uh, that hopefully we'll, I'll be able to share some. So, um, you know, telemedicine is not a new concept, right? Um, you know, right back in 1924, there were, uh, you know, at least these uh, visions of, you know, being able to treat patients remotely, possibly with robotic fingers on, on surgery. And it was more of a fantasy at that time. But um, not so long ago in 1959 to 64, you know, in that range, there was the first actual interactive video link uh, between the Nebraska Psychiatric Institute and the Norfolk Hospital. And this, uh, they, they actually provided care across a chasm of about 100 miles. Um, that was followed very soon in the, in the 1900s, uh, again, when NASA took on telemedicine. And this uh, was the, you know, space age, you know, pushed telemedicine, just as, you know, and we'll, we'll talk a little bit about how COVID is, is, has had another, you know, huge jump for telemedicine. But that is where, um, they were trying to figure out how do we deliver healthcare to astronauts and how do we use the uh, telecommunications technology in that uh, particular arena. And then as you look through the 1970s and the mid 1970s, uh, that particular space technology now starts really in earnest where people are now saying, hey, let's use telemedicine to get to rural areas like the Indian Health Services. And there was a very um, large government-sponsored program um, in Arizona uh, in the Indian Reservation. And they actually did things like uh, x-rays that were read remotely. Um, in 1989, the, it was the first time the patient was successfully defibrillated uh, by telemedicine. So uh, 1993 was a, was a landmark year. Uh, and that's when the American Telemedicine Association was formed. Uh, it's a nonprofit association and um, you know, if, if any one of you ever wants to have uh, sort of a, a deep dive into uh, telemedicine, you know, their website is excellent as well as the Centers for Connected Healthcare. Um, really great uh, fund of information in both of those. But as, as we go further, you know, in the, certainly in, in 2020 now, it's become a, a huge industry. And I think um, it's important for us to sort of just 
you know, quickly uh, get some definitions out of the way. So what is the difference between telehealth and telemedicine? So telehealth really is just using technology for any sort of health um, application. That could be public health, health education, you know, any sort of telecommunications technology. And how I like to, to sort of define it is using technology for anyone doing anything uh, and any technology. It could be a telephone, it could be uh, a computer. So as long as you're using technology in some healthcare space, that would be defined as telehealth, very, very broad. Now, telemedicine though, refers specifically to clinical services. So when we're doing uh, x-ray reads or, or uh, doing consults, that is specifically what telemedicine is. Um, and, you know, is it effective? Um, I think that, uh, you know, as I look back, if you think about disruptive technologies, right? Uh, if you think about streaming audio, or if you think about, you know, cassettes going to CDs and then going to streaming audio, there's always this, this time period where a new technology has, has to get legs and has to get acceptance. So just because a technology is available doesn't mean it's going to be accepted. Um, but if you think about telemedicine, right now about 74% of millennials actually prefer telehealth. 89% um, uh, are accepting telemedicine as sufficient and 85% are satisfied with the care from telemedicine. I can tell you in my own practice, uh, and admittedly, I'm a, I'm a big advocate for telemedicine, but I always offer my patients at the end of the uh, visit with us, would you like your next visit as a telemedicine consult or would you like to come in? And I would say 60 to 70% of patients for sure say, hey, you mean I can do it from home? Absolutely, let's go there. So um, on the clinician side, of course, 93% now view telemedicine as acceptable, which is a change. I mean, there was always this idea that, well, can you really do a physical exam on uh, you know, using telehealth? And the answer today is that um, most physicians believe that you can offer very effective equivalent care uh, with telemedicine, in, in, uh, especially with sleep. It's also extremely cost-effective, right? There've been lots of studies that show um, that there's a significant cost savings. So for example, here's just a couple of you know, um, examples. So in Philadelphia, Jefferson County uh, telemedicine, they reduced the cost from $1,500 to $300 per, for a visit to the hospital and uh, $120 to $19 per telehealth visit. So we think that telehealth is projected to save over $300 billion annually. So there's certainly a, a strong uh, economic argument to be made for, uh, for getting telemedicine in, um, in place. And you can see here that one of the biggest changes that's happened is COVID-19, right? We, by necessity, we had to use COVID, um, not only because it was not possible to see patients uh, in person, that was one thing, but also um, it allowed physicians uh, to uh, especially critical care physicians, to uh, deliver care to multiple hospitals simultaneously, right? So critical care was, was very significant. Um, in the field of sleep, in-lab polysomnography was uh, almost, you know, dead in the first two, uh, two or three months of, uh, of the COVID crisis. You can see here in the European data that uh, in the first uh, six weeks, the in-lab polysomnography went from 92.5% to 20%. Um, and you can see right across the board, I mean, home sleep apnea testing, um, and, and in Europe, they actually do it in person where they actually fit the patients with their home sleep, sleep test device. So everything felt, so COVID was a huge jolt to the system, right? And um, everybody was sort of panicking because patient volume decreased by 41% uh, across um, all clinical specialties. Um, and providers very quickly had to adopt and learn telemedicine. And um, if you look at the Medicare data, uh, telemedicine use exploded 175 times what it used to be uh, in terms of the, of the previous year. And uh, $250 billion of US healthcare spending was felt to come from uh, virtual medicine. So I think that although telemedicine has always been present through the years, um, the technology certainly has advanced and the necessity that was created by COVID has really jumpstarted this. And uh, it's an opportunity for us to 
be able to reach more patients in an extremely efficient manner. And I think specifically for dental sleep medicine, you will see how this can actually change the way uh, sleep medicine is practiced uh, in your own office. Um, obviously, there's a lot of telehealth companies um, that that's whose stocks have uh, just skyrocketed, right, because of the COVID, uh, uh, after COVID. And you can see here the global telemedicine market uh, is expected to um, grow at a CAGR of about 19.2%, which is astronomical. Very, very few industries have that sort of uh, compound annual growth rates. Um, and you can see here that the adult uh, U.S. health use has increased as well. So today, um, there's about 30% of uh, elderly patients who have never used telehealth, uh, which was the opposite prior to uh, the COVID epidemic, where it was 30% uh, had used it. You can see here that uh, companies like Livongo that uh, offer virtual diabetic care um, and iRhythm that do cardiac monitoring remotely, their, their stocks you can see here right about, right about March, which is when the COVID crisis starts, you can see this astronomical rise, right? In both of their valuations. Um, again, a, a reflection of how telehealth is really taking on. Another example here is um, where, where Teladoc, uh, probably the largest uh, telehealth company in the world right now, uh, has more than 12,000 clients, 51 million members. Uh, Teladoc operates in 175 countries. Um, and uh, has about four times utilization over the industry average. So just incredible numbers um, just in the past year or two. So there is a very, very significant opportunity. And if you pause and think for a minute about, you know, why is telemedicine taken off so much? Certainly COVID, you know, we've talked about that, but it really creates value uh, for payers, uh, for consumers and providers. Uh, we'll talk about how payers really were very reluctant to take on um, telemedicine. And part of the reason was they thought it would actually escalate costs, right? Because now it's so easy for a patient to get online. You know, let's be careful. So if you think about the United and Aetna's and Blue Cross Blue Shield, um, you'd like to think they have patient um, welfare in mind, but I, I certainly think cost is, is very much uh, on, their, on their radar screen. And so they were pretty reluctant to use uh, telemedicine. Um, certainly increases consumer access. So um, if you, um, in your own practices, you know, if you wanted to see a sleep doctor, you probably had to think about, you know, who's in your vicinity, who's oral appliance friendly, um, you know, can you, can you create those relationships? It was a hurdle, right? But, but now with, uh, with telemedicine, we have companies like SleepMedRx that are actually focused on providing that care to patients and taking patient preference into account. Um, and I, I, I can certainly tell you that for Sleepmate RX, um, we, we definitely feel uh, that oral appliances should be the first-line therapy for mild to moderate sleep apnea, um, especially when patients, um, you know, prefer it. So we're, we're very strong um, advocates for that. Um, telemedicine also allows an enhanced reach for healthcare services. So if you happen to be in a, in a smaller town or a rural area where you might not have as, as much access, to sleep physicians or you know, working collaboratively, uh, that barrier is pretty much gone now. Um, certainly reduced cost structure. Uh, you know, we have uh, probably telemedicine today with, uh, with our company costs a fraction of what it would um, to, to go through insurance and, um, and, and the costs involved with that. And I can tell you that our customers are uh, extremely satisfied. Uh, whether you talk to the dentists that use us or the patients, um, and that goes across the board for telemedicine. I think most people have a very positive experience. Uh, and as I mentioned, you know, in, in a way we're lucky because with sleep medicine, our physical exam is fairly limited, right? You, you, you have the patient open their mouth, look at the back of the airway, and you can do that very effectively um, through, through telemedicine. So when the COVID-19 epidemic hit, the American Academy of Sleep Medicine had to really scramble, right? And they said, well, how are we going to keep our sleep labs open? And they had uh, you know, a variety of um, uh, guidelines that they, they set out to have. And I think it, it's fair to say that at least for the first three to six months of the, of the pandemic, uh, most of the sleep labs were not doing any testing at all. And then finally, when they did start, 
there was a very significant concern about the aerosolization of uh, particles from CPAP and BiPAP. And so most labs, when they did open finally, did diagnostic testing, but uh, titrations you know, pretty much uh, were, were few and far between. And, and the use of auto CPAP and uh, you know, other uh, modalities started increasing. So there was definitely a change in how sleep medicine was practiced even in the offices. But I think one of the biggest positives uh, came from the government. Uh, and the government realized that, look, if we don't embrace telemedicine, we're gonna be in trouble. Um, obviously it keeps the patients and the physicians safe because uh, there's obviously no spread uh, of COVID through that uh, and increases the reach. So what CMS did in a landmark move was they said, okay, we're going to pay for telemedicine visits on par with a uh, patient uh, in-person visit. Um, that was a sea change. So no other payer was doing that. But once CMS did that, all of the payers obviously followed. The other thing they did was they waived geographic restrictions. So what CMS said prior to the COVID pandemic was that if you wanted to see a patient using telemedicine, they had to be in a geographically underserved area, like rural areas or things. But they waived that geographic restriction so that once, um, you know, after March 2020, in, in the Twin Cities, I could see somebody uh, right in the next suburb uh, through telemedicine because that restriction was lifted. All in all, they added about 104 services that could be provided by telemedicine, including physical therapy, nursing, just a whole bunch of uh, different uh, providers. They also relaxed interstate licensure requirements. So, and we'll get into a little bit about uh, how the regulations work around telemedicine because they still, um, you know, that is still a factor that we have to deal with. Um, and they also relaxed HIPAA requirements. So in the past you had to have, there were extremely stringent privacy um, laws. And for example, you couldn't see a patient on FaceTime or Skype, right? Uh, but with the advent of the COVID crisis, they realized that they had to relax some of those rules. So they relaxed those HIPAA requirements. And um, I think the questions that, that will remain is, you know, what, what will happen to these payments in the long term? So, you know, we know now that there's parity, right? You can, you can get paid by insurance companies the same as you would in person, but will that be the same uh, in 2022, in 24, for example? Uh, not not 100% certain, but I think most people feel that the, you know, the cat's out of the bag. I mean, you, you, it's, it would be really hard to put the genie back in the bottle in terms of telemedicine because patients really have uh, enjoyed the convenience um, of this. And then there is some question about uh, disparities. So if we're going to be expanding telehealth and telemedicine, how are we gonna address um, you know, the minority communities, rural health? So there has to be some work done in, in that area as well. Um, <clears throat> I think that when we think about telemedicine, there's really uh, two, three kinds of telemedicine uh, that, that you need to know about. One is what's called asynchronous or store forward telemedicine. This applies to areas like pathology, dermatology, radiology, where they get data in real time, but then a doctor would review the data and generate reports um, maybe a few days later and then and give the patient back the report. Um, the telemedicine that we're most used to is actually synchronous telemedicine, right? This is what we do when we see patients online and do their consultations. And that's called synchronous telemedicine. And lastly, there's this new advent of remote patient monitoring where once you've seen a patient, you can maybe monitor their compliance or their, um, or their response to therapy. For example, if you're a diabetic or a congestive heart failure patient, your doctor could be gathering data um, using technology, whether it be wearables or um, you know, uh, home sleep testing devices, um, whether that be glucose monitoring or cardiograms, and they can actually take care of the patients on a team basis. That's called remote patient monitoring. Um, and, and it hasn't, uh, you know, it, it's, it's starting to take off, although the, there's the payment parity does not apply to that yet. So when you think about, you know, implementing telemedicine in your practice, what are the practical issues that you should be aware of? Well, number one, I think the, the biggest thing is actually the bullet point number three here, which is that telemedicine does not allow you to cut corners, right? 
you will be held to the same standards of care as if the patient was in person. That is the one takeaway that you should always have. So for me, seeing a sleep patient in the office and seeing a sleep patient virtually is exactly the same. You know, I do, I, I do almost the same physical exam. Yes, I don't you know, necessarily listen to the heart or lungs, but I do do a pretty good upper airway exam and go through the same history and physical that I would otherwise. You have to have patient consent. You have to know about patient privacy. So um, I think it's important for patients to recognize that their privacy will be maintained because they don't want to be thinking that you're in a, you know, let's say you're home and family members are around. Super important to assure the patient that, hey, we're going to be maintaining privacy while doing this, this particular consultation. Um, you have to follow all of the state uh, regulations, and we'll talk a little bit more about that. Um, it has to be in an electronic medical record where you're storing the information uh, about the patient's visit, and it should be retrievable, um, just like any other uh, visit. And you have to have uh, clinical protocols and contingency instructions. So any telemedicine company you work with, just make sure that they have these protocols in place so that uh, you, we don't run into any trouble. So um, having said that, I, I think many, many states, um, in 2017, for example, 40 states uh, had adopted substantive policies that allowed telemedicine coverage across the US. And more and more private payers are adopting CMS standards. So uh, people are getting paid for telemedicine. And in terms of, of sleep, uh, the American Academy of Sleep Medicine has, uh, is a strong supporter of telemedicine, right? This, um, this uh, statement by the American Academy of Sleep Medicine position was done uh, in, uh, as early as 2015 and then recently revised. And basically they have a blueprint of what exact uh, information we are supposed to be gathering from the patient during a telemedicine visit, what can be addressed and what shouldn't be. So this is something that, uh, you know, uh, certainly in Sleep Med RX, we're very, very familiar with and, uh, and, and do, um, do, you know, follow all of those guidelines. Um, the, the, the biggest barrier and I think um, fear that people have about telemedicine, certainly physicians I know have this fear, is are they gonna run into regulatory issues, right? And I think it's, um, here are the basics. If you do a telemedicine consult, you have to be licensed in your own state. So if I'm in Minnesota, for example, I have to be licensed in Minnesota and I have to be licensed in the state that the patient is being seen or is physically present in. So if I'm doing a, a consultation in Mississippi, I have to be licensed in Minnesota and Mississippi. So that is one of the reasons why I, for example, am licensed in all 50 states. So I can see patients anywhere in the US um, and, and certainly SleepMedRx is structured so that we can provide telemedicine care anywhere in the US, which, which by the way, took some doing. Um, there is some exception. So with Medicare patients, you can typically see them across state lines, even if you don't have licensure, but um, you know how long that's gonna last is up for debate. And at least most states um, have not adopted those rules uniformly. So if you're, if you're a CMS patient, perhaps you'll get away with it. But if you are Blue Cross Blue Shield or, you know, um, or, or just going through state regulations, you do have to be careful about those. And then there's uh, this issue of the corporate practice of medicine, which is um, as a physician, I cannot be employed by a non-physician. Uh, similarly, a dentist, uh, you know, as you know, there are DSO setups and structures like that. Uh, as professionals, we have to be uh, following the corporate practice of medicine laws as well. Um, I'll just go through uh, just a little, uh, a little disclaimer here. Um, when, when we practice tele, um, telemedicine, it is extremely important to recognize that not all malpractice policies cover telemedicine. So you have to have specific telemedicine coverage for uh, for practicing this. So um, many of the dentists now are adopting telemedicine into their own practice. And I would strongly encourage them to at least talk with their malpractice carrier and make sure that the telemedicine clauses are in place. Because um, you know certainly for us, we had to add uh, significant writers and actually buy a new telemedicine policy to, uh, to add to our current one. That's just something that, you know, as you start thinking about, uh, because, when, when we talk about telemedicine, it's not only physicians doing telemedicine with patients. Dentists 
are using telemedicine every day to follow up their patients and to um, you know uh, maybe make adjustments on the dental devices. We'll talk a little bit about that as we go on as well. So, hey, um, Doc, real real quick, since, yeah. since you brought that up, I know um, one of the we've got a couple of questions, and I can kind of sum them up in this one since you just referenced that. Yeah. Um, the differences between telemedicine and teledentistry. Mm -hmm. are obviously, you know, the, the different licensed professions, but dentists who are providers of dental sleep medicine are doing telemedicine consults for their sleep apnea patients. Yep. So would there, from your perspective, since you're a licensed physician that already does telemedicine, would they need to have additional writers or licensure on their malpractice for doing telemedicine consults as the dentist? I would definitely check with their uh, malpractice carrier. Uh, that is an absolute yes. Uh, now, now many of the malpractice policies do include telemedicine coverage, so that's the good okay. news. Uh, but certainly, there are policies that do not, and it is important to check with your malpractice carrier if you're doing any kind of telemedicine, for sure. Got it. And uh, the state by state questions, I'm going to leave because you're you're going there right now. So yeah, I'll get out of yeah. your way. Yep. So cool. you know, I, I just put these up not not to go through them exhaustively. But just to sort of demonstrate to you that uh, different states have different policies, right? So uh, Minnesota, for example, is very friendly towards telemedicine. So you can see that there's laws, they, they allow live video, they allow store and forward or asynchronous telemedicine. Um, they are part of a licensing compact. We'll talk about that in a minute. Um, but there are other states um, that have different um, uh, policies. So for example, in California, there is not payment parity. Uh, remote monitoring is not allowed. Um, for in Connecticut, for example, you know you can't do store store and forward or asynchronous telemedicine uh, without specific exceptions. Um, and so, you know, these are the sorts of policies that you have to be very aware of as you're starting to do telemedicine. Now, the good news for us is that most states allow synchronous telemedicine. Um, that use audio and video, and uh, that's usually not a problem. So again, in sleep medicine, we, we are, are sort of lucky. One of the good things that's happened is, uh, is called compact licensure. So uh, many states have banded together and said like, hey, if you have a medical license in Minnesota, we're gonna make it super easy for you to get uh, a license in all of the sort of dark blue states here. So instead of taking a three month um, you know, prolonged uh, process to get a, another license, you can do that within a couple of weeks. Um, and so on the medical side, that is certainly a big advantage. Um, I'm not sure that is the case for, for dental uh, practice, though. That's something. And I, I think, um, you know, it's fair to say that for medicine, practicing across state lines makes a lot of sense because we don't necessarily do a hands-on fitting of a device, for example. So this may not be as relevant uh, for some of you. But um, certainly for medicine, this is an advantage. All right, so we're gonna go really super quick now um, because I'm just gonna talk to you about how telehealth is used in sleep medicine specifically. And if you think about obstructive sleep apnea, for example, uh, on, on this little right-hand side, um, you can do evaluation, you can do testing, you can communicate the results, you can do initial treatment care, and chronic care management. So uh, SleepMedRx, for example, has a contract with Amerigas, which is a large trucking company, right? So we manage 6,000 of their drivers right from the time they are diagnosed, right through therapy, right through compliance with CPAP. So everything is done uh, right, right on our platform on, through telehealth. Um, for, for, and we'll talk about you know, dental sleep in just a bit, but we can certainly treat patients with insomnia, uh, both for consults and follow-up. Um, here's some data on patient satisfaction uh, that was uh, peer-reviewed studies, obviously um, double-blinded. And you can see that video visits and in-person visits, they have pretty much the same uh, patient satisfaction and treatment adherence. Um, and this was reported in the Journal of uh, Telemedicine. Um, here's a randomized control study that looked at long-term sleep apnea CPAP management. And you can see here um, that uh, there was essentially uh, no difference, or there was no inferiority using telemedicine with uh, monthly or three monthly follow-up in person. And uh, I'm sure all of you dentists uh, in the audience and, and myself too are chuckling at the, the tremendously low 
uh, compliance numbers that you can see with CPAP. And I think that uh, it's fair to say that uh, another reason why I think it is so important for physicians and dentists to work together, because um, the, the sad truth is that, you know, 50% of patients don't use CPAP after year one. So we must uh, create those pathways for them uh, to get into other uh, forms of therapy. Um, this is just a forest plot uh, that looks at um, compliance in patients with obstructive sleep apnea and how, and again, using telemedicine. And this is, uh, the reason I put this up is this is a large database with 2,500 patients almost. And you can see here that um, the overall data analysis actually favors telehealth compared to in-person visits when it comes to chronic management of, uh, of CPAP. All right, another you know, similar forest plot graph uh, for, for compliance with CPAP. Um, <clears throat> cognitive and behavioral therapy can be administered uh, for, uh, for insomnia through telemedicine. I think one of the um, real values that I think we provide uh, with telehealth is when we see a patient with obstructive sleep apnea, we can address some of the other issues. So I often am prescribing, you know, medications for restless leg or, or talking about, uh, you know, re sleep restriction therapy for insomnia and things like that, which I think are helpful as you start treating your sleep apnea patients, because there's so many other little issues that you want addressed. And that's uh, pretty simple for us to do as, as we go across. Um, and again, I'm just sort of uh, now just, showing you a few, there's a lot of peer reviewed studies that basically show that telehealth um, is able to, to reach uh, patients in, in a very cost-effective and compliant manner. So the last um, sort of focus of this conversation uh, today is gonna be about the sleep dentistry in particular uh, and, and uh, telemedicine and why I think it, it's just a game changer, right? Um, so when I was uh, with Somnomed, you know, a long time ago, we had, um, you know, a lot of, you know, we, we used to do conferences where dentists used to come, you know, teach them about uh, the skills for sleep. And there was a lot of enthusiasm. People said, well, wow, you know, we can actually change people's lives, which is true. Uh, you know, you, you actually improve the quality of their life and, uh, and their mortality when you treat sleep apnea, extremely important. But the problem, of course, is that once you go back to your uh, offices, you are really dependent on sort of local relationships, trying to figure out, hey, how do I send a patient to a sleep doctor and then not have them go on CPAP, uh, or at least have them communicate back as to why and what, what happened. So, you know, the enthusiasm, which starts really high, sort of drops off. Um, and, and of course, getting paid is hard because because of all the barriers of, you know, you, you need to have a sleep test, you need to have it interpreted by a board certified doc, you need to have a prescription in hand. And so there's a lot of challenges and a lot of barriers to patients getting good care. And very, we were very, very aware of this. So, you know, common obstacles, are there barriers getting patients with the right diagnosis? Do you think the cost of getting, uh, you know, diagnosed with sleep apnea is high? I mean, if you send a patient to a sleep physician and they do polysomnography, I mean, that's a few thousand dollars. Not everybody has that sort of money. And do you really need full polysomnography to diagnose obstructive sleep apnea? No, I mean, certainly not. Um, so again, have, have you screened patients, send them to a doc, and now they come back with CPAP? And, and you know, when, when we clearly they prefer dental devices, Are you, have you been struggling with testing and screening workflow? All of these were obstacles that we were, we were seeing. And I think um, on top of all of this, uh, payers are making it uh, mandatory now that, hey, you have to get a, a consult with a physician. You have to be able to get a prescription from a board certified doc. And it has to be on, uh, you know, you have to document all of this with a face-to-face -face, um, uh, encounter. So I think that um, the, the burden for dentists uh, to be able to treat patients who are urgently in need uh, of good therapy uh, is, is actually uh, a real barrier. So I think what, uh, what we really have been focusing on is how do we decrease barriers for patients using technology, using sleep medicine um, to create really seamless workflows. So that, the, the, you know, what I like to say is if you screen a patient in your office, you should be able to get a prescription in hand uh, in about two weeks. I mean, that is the uh, workflow that we have really been refining and working towards. So, um, and, I, and I think, uh, 
you know, happy to say that we, we certainly are able to do that using technology. So how does this happen? Certainly using telehealth is key to this, right? So, you know, if you can screen a patient, um, you should be able to get that patient evaluated with a telemedicine consult within a week. Um, and, and certainly patients can uh, have excellent sort of standard of care meeting all of the AASM guidelines doing this. Uh, we typically would discuss with a patient uh, during the consultation what sleep apnea is, what the different therapies are, uh, certainly talk about the treatment plan. And then if they, uh, we can even use telehealth uh, using the oral appliance treatment protocol. So plenty of dentists uh, will see the patient in their office for the first visit, but then they do all of the titrations using telemedicine uh, on the platform that, that uh, we have. So um, a, a couple of just practical pointers um, as we see patients, you know, one of the things is that you really should have audio and video backups. If a, if a computer doesn't work, if audio is malfunctioning, uh, important to have backup because the patient obviously has spent their time and money to be on that platform. Uh, important to center yourself and look at the camera as you're talking to people so that they're so that they're not uh, feeling distracted. I, I, I often tell my patients, look, as I'm talking to you, I'm going to be typing and looking at, the, at your chart, but I, I always glance up so that I have that eye to eye contact as well. Uh, important to look professional, right? Um, you know, I, I, this, is, this is important. Don't sort of move around too much. Uh, good lighting, good, good, um, uh, good location. Introduce yourself. So when I'm uh, having a consultation, says, oh, so you've been referred by, you know, Dr. Smith and my name is Dr. Bijwadi. I'm in St. Paul, Minnesota. Where are you located? Having that sort of chit chat up front really puts them at ease. Uh, and that's, that's something that's, uh, you know, important for us. Uh, we talked about the eye contact. Um, have, it, have their consent. Say, is it okay for us to have this consultation on, on a telemedicine platform? We certainly, uh, you know, when they sign up for the consultation, we do have a consent form that, uh, that is part of it. Um, in terms of privacy, I think that if you have a home with other people, probably a good idea to have headphones so that other people can't hear the conversation. Um, and I also tell the patients, look, nothing's going to be recorded. So, you know, don't worry about that. Um, I am uh, diligent about a focused uh, physical exam. So um, I, I think when I started telemedicine, there was a little bit, I was a little bit embarrassed to tell the patient like, hey, open your mouth. But now I'm absolutely fearless. I'll say, hey, come close to the camera, open your mouth really wide, stick out your tongue, clench your teeth. And I really try and do a, a good um, thorough exam. And I've even had patients sort of, you know, change their lighting or go to a different place so that I can actually see the back of their airway. So, um, you know, I think that, you know, as we think about the future of, of telehealth, um, important to think about, you know, will, the, will these reforms that the CMS introduced and that COVID accelerated, will that, will that last for, for uh, years to come? You know, my suspicion is yes. Uh, again, it's, I think it's patients will demand it. Um, it's important to address the digital divide. We talked about some of the disparities. Um, I think it's important to recognize that our whole infrastructure, right? The hospitals, the physician offices, the bricks and mortar is all based on a business model that is completely disrupted by telehealth. So, um, you know, the economics of telehealth, I think are gonna be worked out over time. Yes, we save money, but what happens to people who have been relying uh, like hospitals on, on uh, you know, in-person visits? How does all of that shake out in the long run? And then I think malpractice and cybersecurity are becoming increasingly large concerns. When we got our uh, large corporate contract with Amerigas, they really weren't worried about, you know, whether we'll be able to take care of their drivers. That was a given. What they were worried about was cybersecurity. And they made us buy a really large insurance policy to cover for cybersecurity. So that was a sort of an interesting learning for us. So I think that, uh, you know, as we go further, you know, uh, especially with sleep telehealth, there has been a revolution because, um, Two things have happened. One, one is, of course, telemedicine, uh, which we've talked about extensively now, but also the use of disposable home sleep testing. So in the past, you know, we had to figure out the logistics of getting a device to a patient, getting the device back, uploading the studies, you know, all of that. Now we have disposable devices. You can, you know, give the patient a device or mail them a device and they simply use it. Um, there are devices that can be used multiple times, like the 
like the night owl as shown here, um, or the uh, watchpad night one is a, is a disposable as well. And when you as a dentist are able to do multiple studies with a single device over a period of time, guess what? You can now titrate the patient objectively, right? So you don't have to guess anymore whether the patient's obstructive sleep apnea is better. You can do it in a very controlled and objective way. Again, leveraging technology for the home sleep test as well as uh, telehealth. Um, a lot of uh, home sleep testing is now being auto-scored. Auto um, there's a lot of wearables. So people are coming into offices. Certainly, you know, we see patients every day. They say, hey, doc, my, my uh, you know, Apple iWatch is telling me that I'm not getting any deep sleep or not having REM sleep. You know, so, so those are conversations that open up um, and allow us to have those important sleep related conversations with patients. So, um, Doc, I, if yeah. I if I could have you go back to that slide, just just for clarity for the audience's sake, yeah. um, the the Apple iWatch or yeah. Apple Watch does not diagnose sleep apnea. <laughs> However, Correct. the unit smaller than the watch that's on that fingertip is the night owl, and it can. Uh, yes. So it's the the footprint has drastically changed uh, for what's out there on the market, uh, as, as you were saying. Right. One of the, yeah, I mean, one of this, um, you know, this is the uh, NIDO. So it's, it's a little device that basically sits on your finger um, with a Band-Aid and you can use it for 10 nights. So it, it really is uh, making the diagnosis uh, extremely simple um, and very accurate, by the way. So it's, uh, you know, been validated against polysomnography. Um, but I think one, the iWatch, one... uh, go ahead, Michael. I, I've got a, a question here uh, on the night owl, actually, um, okay. since you, you referenced it a little earlier. Um, when you're using the night owl, and it is incredibly accurate based on all the studies, the channels that it's measuring, and you get a great looking report from it. When you're talking to a patient, do you ever come into the, um, do you ever come into the situation where they're like, I, I taped a Band-Aid to my finger, and now you're telling me that I have this life-threatening disease? Mm -hmm. how, how does that work? Yeah, does, does that ever come up because of the footprint? Well, I, not that specific question, but patients do ask, like, how accurate is this device? I mean, am I, am I, am I going to believe yeah. this result? And I think part of it is just explaining the technology. I think one of the things people are recognizing more and more now that we have wearables and all kinds of, uh, you know, remote monitoring in place, people now understand that technology is really advanced. Um, especially in the healthcare space. So I think that when we explain to them how peripheral arterial tonometry works and how the night owl is uh, validated through the FDA, I think those uh, anxieties can be can be pretty well laid easily. Yeah. Yeah. Having and um, yeah, and uh, on on the multi night part, uh, could you speak to the value from your perspective as a sleep physician? of sure. the multi-night aspect of that particular device. I know you and I've had lots of dialogue about it. We don't right. have time to succinct that like in a, a nutshell for us here. Yeah, and, and full disclosure, I'm uh, you know one of the scientific advisors for, um, for Night Owl. But um, the way, the, the, the reason I'm, uh, I, I feel is such an important advance is that especially in the field of dental sleep medicine, right? Um, we, we all know that there's this individual variability in response. So, you know, once you have an, a, a baseline study and you start protruding the jaw, um, you know, as we all know that there's a certain sort of optimal position, right? Beyond which uh, moving the jaw can actually be detrimental, right? It, certainly in terms of side effects, but also in terms of the apnea hypopnea index. So, um, so, I mean, till now, when you advance and titrate a device, you, you basically were going with symptom improvement. Have you stopped snoring? Do you feel better? Uh, are, are you feeling like you're more rested? Yep. Okay, let's do another study, right? That, that was sort of the, the model. Um, and I think with, with the night owl, what you can do is you start in your, let's say, habitual bite or maybe 50% protrusion, whatever you're used to. But then as you're um, advancing the device, you can tell the patient, hey, on, you know, I want you to use your night owl again on night five and 10, and I want to see whether the you know, AHI is coming down. So now you're actually objectively following this patient uh, with a little device that sits on their finger so that 
you know, there's this incredibly uh, robust uh, objective and subjective sort of follow-up for the patient, which I think makes uh, an incredible difference um, in terms of how, how you manage them uh, once they're titrated. Cool. Okay. Awesome. Yeah, keep, we, we got questions pouring in. I'll let you finish and then we'll uh, hop into the Q&A here pretty quick. Yeah, so this is the last slide, but I just wanted to sort of walk you through what our current uh, flow is uh, for SleepMateRx, right? Um, and just a, just a brief, uh, you know, summaries. So basically, SleepMateRx is a medical practice, right? We have physicians and we have nurse practitioners that are licensed in multiple states and work through telemedicine. That's, that's what we are. And we focus only on sleep. So we don't do, you know, sore throats and, you know, anything else. We're just a sleep medicine uh, practice. And we, we like to think that we are very oral appliance friendly because, uh, you know, my background, of course, I've already talked to you about, but we only recruit people that, that believe in the same philosophy that we do. So, so I think that's a, a little bit of a differentiator. And how, how we think that the workflow works best right now is once you identify a patient as at high risk for sleep apnea in your practice, so you've screened the patient, they snore, you know, yep, yep you're sleepy during the day. I think you could have sleep apnea. So, so you start that. Once you do that, I think that um, most people would agree that while the patient is in the office is the best time to schedule a consult so that there's, you know, you're not sending them out and saying like, hey, I, I want you to see Dr. Smith across the street who's a sleep doctor and, you know, the patient leaves and they forget. No, you are actually going to schedule a telemedicine consult right before the patient leaves, right, on, uh, on, on a platform. And within a week, we're actually seeing the patient, doing the consultation, educating them about the importance of sleep apnea, different ways to treat it. And at the end of the consultation, we prescribe a home sleep test, right? The home sleep test is completed. And within 48 hours, we're able to uh, review the study and write the prescription that we've already talked to the patient about and return the patient to the dentist. So I think um, this is, uh, you know, as streamlined a workflow as you can get, uh, you know, we, we do have the capability of uh, managing the patient in other ways. So, if, you know, if a patient turns out to have very severe sleep apnea, we had a patient the other day who I saw who had a pacemaker, he had congestive heart failure, and he had failed CPAP three years ago, but he was also 340 pounds. And I told him, I said, you know, you, you should not be on a dental device as your first choice, even if you failed once. Let's try CPAP again. Mm -hmm. We put him on CPAP. And so there are situations. And of course, we absolutely communicate this back to the dentist. That's the other thing. You have to collaborate. It's a team sport, right? There'll yep. be patients that I can't manage that I want my dentist to help with and, and vice versa. So I think that's the sort of practice that I think... Um, you know, the future holds. Uh, and, and I'm, I've, I've been super excited with the technological advances that have allowed us to do that. Yeah. So well, I, I, Doug, I, I have to uh, hop in here with one comment too. I yeah. think one of the, one of the fringe benefits that wasn't mentioned uh, tonight in your presentation is that uh, not just like every dentist isn't created equal. Every dental practice isn't the same. Not all sleep practices are created equal. And telemedicine is a cool bridge where people all across the country can have access to you or your team and not respectfully uh, be stuck with somebody who may or may not share the same, uh, you know, operating structure. So that's a, that's a cool bridge. Yeah. Um, so if, uh, if you're okay, we've, we've got a lot of questions. Yeah. And uh, let's go for it. We're yeah. So, so um, the, uh, on the night owl, um, one of the questions was, uh, how does the night owl measure breath and can it be reused for titration and the final sleep study without additional fees? Um, I'll let you handle the breath answer. I'll answer the fee side, you guys. Um, the titration tests uh, can be utilized on the night owl without having a physician's read. But if you're talking about the final efficacy test actually being um, read by a physician, obviously that read is going to incur an additional fee um, at the very end. But yeah, um, go ahead for the, the clinical side of that. Yeah, so very briefly, um, the, the way the night owl works is, you know, when we, when we have an apnea or a hypopnea, what happens is your airway constricts, your oxygen levels fall, 
And that triggers an adrenergic response, right? So your adrenaline and noradrenaline levels go up. That causes vasoconstriction, right? So every time your airway constricts, your oxygen levels fall, you get an adrenergic response and your blood vessels constrict. So what we're measuring on your finger is the constriction um, of the blood vessel that occurs because of the airflow abnormality. That's how the airflow and the, uh, the vasoconstrictive signal are linked. And if you link that further to a drop in oxygen level, now you actually have the full spectrum. So you know that there was a stop breathing event, you know that there was vasoconstriction and you know that the oxygen level fell. And that's how you uh, mm -hmm. diagnose sleep apnea with this device. Cool, awesome. Um, another, uh, so complete 90 degree turn here. Uh, will all medical insurance companies, including Medicare, accept sleep tests that are ordered via telemedicine um, without physician referral and face-to-face? -face? So I'm guessing the question is, without a live physical contact consult, will telemedicine suffice for all payers in all states? And they specifically asked about Michigan. I'm guessing they're in, uh, in, the, <laughs> yeah. in, that, in that state. Go ahead. Yeah, um, so we have not had any issues getting paid uh, for home sleep tests from any company that we know so far with telemedicine. Um, so no, there's, there's no issue with that. Cool. Uh, Autumn asks, does the patient know their consult fee in the practice uh, prior to making the um, appointment? I can answer that absolutely. on the dental side. Yes, absolutely. Uh, mm -hmm. They have to know what the fee is walking into it. Um, okay, so we got a lot. I'm gonna pepper you with these. Um, what uh, technology-wise, what technology requirements um, are there for performing a telemedicine consult, both for the patient and the doctor's office? Smartphone, computer, a Zoom account, like what, what's required there? Yeah, so um, our platform uh, is enabled for uh, any device. So it could be a laptop, it could be a computer, it could be a mobile device, an iPad, doesn't matter. So we basically have the patient just log in uh, with a username and password, hit a link, and they're on. So it's, okay. it's just like Zoom. Got it. Um, it. Okay, it sounds like my team needs to be on board for this telemedicine workflow. How would you recommend we train them? Uh, I'll pay whoever asked this. Could you share the last slide for yes. our uh, offer that we have? Sure, um, absolutely. So we're, we're, we're uh, the course offer you guys is, um, uh, that we've got for you is our course uh, with Awaken to Sleep. Uh, if you can see it here, uh, we basically want to invite you guys to a two-day event. If you like some of what we were dropping tonight, uh, we do a lot more of that. We have a lot of fun. It's a Friday-Saturday course. Uh, the next one that's coming up is the 14th and 15th of May. So that's a week and a half from now. Uh, because you guys have attended the webinar and we have that available, uh, we've got limited seats, but if you guys want one, it's half off. Uh, so if you go to awakentosleep.com backslash events, that event for you guys is going to be 50% off. For the 297, you get 14 CEs and you get to invite 14 members. So it's doc plus four. That's five people, 14 CEs each. And uh, I have to tell you, Dr. Greg Manning, uh, who is our co-presenter on that course, is stinking funny. So uh, if you guys want some education on the workflow, the how-tos, that kind of thing, uh, strongly encourage you guys go there. Um, thank you for the, uh, the question and the shameless plug there. Um, I'll get into a few more here. Um, Dr. Bijwadia, back to you on this. Uh, could you walk us through a, a brief outline of what you would go through with a dental patient who you're reviewing their HSC report? So post initial consult sleep test, you're talking to them about next steps. Let's say it's for oral appliance therapy. What does that conversation look like? Yeah, I'll give, I'll give you my uh, spiel that I give my patients, right? So I say, um, Mrs. Smith, uh, you know, your sleep study confirms the fact that you have sleep apnea. And uh, when we do a sleep test, what we're essentially doing is counting the number of times your upper airway is collapsing and causing your oxygen levels to fall. Um, we classify it as mild, moderate, or severe based on the number of times your airway collapses. In your case, it looks like you have moderate sleep apnea. So let's say your apnea index was 14 or you know 18, something like that. And I would say that for patients with mild to moderate sleep apnea, there's a couple of choices. 
Um, there's CPAP, which is a mask that fits over the face and pressurizes the airway from the inside. Dental devices are like a mouth guard that uh, gently move the mandible forward and passively open up the airway. Uh, dental devices work great for patients with mild to moderate sleep apnea, and oftentimes patients sort of stick with it better uh, just because it's more comfortable. You do need to see a dentist that you know, is trained in dental sleep medicine so that you know, they, they are able to do that for you. And also it's important for us to do a before and after study to make sure that the dental device works. But um, in the long run, um, you know, dental devices have been shown to be as effective as CPAP. Certainly for severe sleep apnea, I would say that CPAP is a better choice uh, as an initial. However, there are many patients with severe sleep apnea who, who can tolerate CPAP or prefer a dental device, and that's okay too. So that's sort of the, you know, a two minute spiel that I would give the patient and then yeah. answer their questions from there. Awesome. Uh, any, uh, any feedback on your case acceptance? I know that's a, that's more of a dental word on the, the business side of the house, but how many patients do you get that look at you and say, yeah, I don't think so. Or yeah. they just do what you say, like, do you have the magic wand? You know, I, I have to say that, you know, once a patient comes through for a consult and does home sleep testing, we find that they're pretty committed. And um, I just haven't had patients that are, you know, go through the process and say, oh, now I'm just not going to do anything about it. It's just not that common. So um, I think that, you know, we do emphasize the risks of untreated sleep apnea. Um, I go through the physiology of sleep apnea with the patients. And by the end of it, I think, um, you know, just like in my practice, we just don't have that sort of, they, they might sort of waver between what treatment they want, that's for sure. But whether to treat or not, no, I think they usually go forward. Got it. Uh, Joseph's got a question. Can an insurance company demand a trial CPAP or a CPAP trial, even if a physician prescribes an oral appliance? Yeah. Yes. So that's a good question. Um, the answer is yes. Uh, very, very few insurances actually do require that. Um, you know, there's a company called AIM that sometimes has, you know, certain Blue Cross Blue Shields uh, require that. Um, but I have to tell you that we, we are happy to write peer review letters and we certainly have to, um, you know, with every prescription, we always write a certificate of me medical need. So when mm -hmm. a dentist has a prescription, they have our CMN right with it. Um, right. And so, yeah, it, it, it's, it's it, obviously we're aware of that, uh, but we're mm -hmm. happy to fight with the insurers. <laughs> awesome. Yeah, <laughs> sometimes that needs to happen. That's for sure. Um, okay, uh, scheduled for their appointment. Oh, what is the ideal setting for a patient when you do a telemedicine consult? Is it in their house? Is it them coming back to the dentist's office? And I guess we could parlay that into another question, which is no-show rates, even if someone's committed or paid for the visit. So ideal setting and how to avoid no-show rates. Let's, let's put those two together. Sure. So um, on a typical... Um, I would say that the no-show rate is less than ten less than five percent even. So out of a hundred patients we see, maybe five don't show. Uh, I think that's partly because they've been prepped and they've paid, right? So it's unusual for somebody not to do it. In terms of where to do the consult, um, you know, I think it depends on the patient's schedule. Uh, but we, I would say, ninety-five percent of our consults are done with the patient either in their home or their office or even in a car. You know, they just take out, whip out their phone, you know, stop for a few minutes and do that. So, so we've seen all flavors. Now there are, um, there's no problem doing a, a consult at the dental office. The hard part is the scheduling, you know, making yep. sure that you have this, that, uh, that schedule aligned. That's a little bit uh, harder to do. Got it. But if they're doing it on checkout, like what you mentioned, yep. they've got the patient in front of them that gets scheduled at the same time they have a window or a, a column. Right. Uh, and open. so far, yeah, I mean, so far, uh, you know, we are able to schedule patients, I'll say within two to three days. So we don't have yeah. long wait periods. I mean, if it takes, you know, more than a week to schedule a consult, and maybe the no-show rate would be higher, but we yeah. typically say see patients within 48 hours. So it's, it's pretty quick. Awesome. Okay. Um, uh, time frame. Okay. You already hit time frame for receiving the Rx. Post consult, that's uh, so. Let's say the consult happens. Mm -hmm. At what point should the dentist's office expect to have your chart notes and prescription, that kind of thing? 
Yep. So once the consult happens, um, we wait for the home sleep study uh, to be done. We typically do two nights of testing. And usually within 48 hours of the sleep study being done, the report is back in with a prescription. So I would say um, pretty realistic to think that a week after this consult is completed, you would have all of the documentation and the prescription in hand. Gotcha. And does that, the prescription and the letter of medical necessity, does that also include the chart notes automatically from uh, the consults? Yep. So you can download the chart notes uh, whenever you want. Absolutely. Got it. And also, I I mean, I I do want to emphasize that, uh, you know, if a patient does require other forms of therapy, we do arrange that. So we have nationwide collaboration with, uh, you know, with other therapies as well. Got it. Awesome. Well, uh, we are almost 10 after. uh, So we are on, we'll we'll call this on time uh, for today, especially given the amount of questions that we had. Um, So since we're past the time uh, from a CE requirement, guys, just a a reminder, uh, there is, uh, there are two links in the chat right now. Uh, One, you can go to the survey for your CEs. You want to get those CEs again, 37.2 seconds to finish your survey. It's not long. The second link uh, is for the upcoming course. If you guys want to go deeper into uh, dental sleep medicine, you want to have some fun on a weekend, uh, click that link, get your ticket. Uh, last thing, if you want to see Dr. Jack Deep again, you can schedule a consult directly with him at sleepmedrx.com. If you're a dental office looking to integrate this into your practice, uh, Awaken to Sleep would love to help you. Uh, we work with uh, Jack Deep and uh, many of his colleagues. So We'd love to get you guys connected with a workflow that makes sense for your practice and uh, connected to their providers. So thank you guys for your time. Doc, any, uh, any parting words to sound out yeah, here? Yeah, listen, I, 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 love, uh, I love working with dentists, so this is great. And uh, I would love for uh, the audience, if they want to connect with me on LinkedIn, just you know, keep in touch. Uh, any questions, always here to help. Cool, awesome. Well, thank you, Doc, for your time tonight. Uh, We hope you guys have a good rest of your evening. Thank you for joining us on this webinar. If you'd like more information on dental sleep medicine education, coaching, or home sleep testing services, please feel free to reach out to us at awakentosleep.com forward slash edu or at info at awaken2sleep.com. Thank you and have a great day.